でお風呂を沸かします。お風呂の声は何ですか？自動でお風呂の声は何ですか？自動で。Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Anna Chizinski, James Harkin, and Andrew Hunter Murray. And once again, we have gathered round the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, James. Okay, my fact this week is that elephants can tell how much of something is in a closed bucket by smell alone. It's wow. so cool. It's so amazing. So. Let's say, let me take one of you, for instance, Dan, because、yes. I'm looking at you. Hello.、Um, if you have two plates of food,、yeah. and one of them has got three steaks on, and the other one's got one steak, you'd know which one had the most steaks. Damn right. right. But if you had two boxes of cornflakes that were both closed, you wouldn't be able to tell which one was full of cornflakes and which one isn't full of cornflakes. And elephants can do this. So that's insane. <laughs> are, are they? Am I? Am I allowed to shake the cornflake boxes? And are they allowed to shake the buckets with their noses?、They're, you're allowed to do whatever you want. Uh huh. No one's going to stop you unless you do it too much in Sainsbury's. <laughs>、um, but the elephants, no, they didn't do any touch at all. It was all completely by smell, and it was. In that particular case, it was two buckets containing eleven different ratios of sunflower seeds, and they managed to choose the bucket with the most sunflower seeds, fifty-nine percent to eighty-two percent of the time, which is more than you would expect by chance. And actually, even dogs—they've tried this on dogs, and dogs can't do it. So basically, if you've got, say,、um, Two kilograms of cocaine up your bum,、yeah. <laughs> or four kilograms of cocaine up your bum. The dogs wouldn't know which one it was. Right,、yeah. I think if you had four <laughs> kilograms of cocaine up your bum, it wouldn't take a sniffer dog to identify you. <laughs> You'd be. Do you think there'd be a marked difference, do you, between the four and the two? I think in your gate, yes. You think、um, the gates would be different? <laughs> no, yeah, no, no mate. It's like a big pocket up there. Four would... kilos yeah, of cocaine. Kilo, two kilos is still uncomfortable, Andy.、Yeah. It's not like you're swaggering along comfortably. It doesn't have to be one big bag as well. You could do ten small bags. Oh, great! That's going to make a big difference, isn't well, it? On the entry point, I think it would. <laughs>、um, I want to know how you close a bucket. I'm glad you said bucket at the end of the sentence. <laughs>、um, it's buckets with a with a lid on. The buckets. I wish my buckets came with a lid. How many buckets do you have? But I have loads. <laughs> yeah, like a bucket you would put a, make a fire in. You would need a lid for, wouldn't you? Why are you making fires in buckets? Well, I'm trying to get rid of all this cocaine I've got out of my bum. <laughs> it's really、um, interesting, right? It's not even like these amounts are. Huge differences. I, I think I read in the study that let's say what were we saying? Seeds, sunflower, sunflower seeds, sunflower seeds. seeds.、Yeah. It would be the difference between say 150 sunflower seeds and 130. No. They, they, not all of them could get it. It's obviously easier yeah, yeah. for them with bigger differences. But yeah, even yeah. at that point, they could still do it. So the other cool thing was they double blinded it because the experimenters thought we might accidentally give away. If we, because we know which buckets have the most sunflower seeds in, and we might get really excited when they're going towards the bigger one, so they、mm. definitely made kept, made sure that the elephants didn't know, and the researchers didn't know where the sunflower seeds were. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's useful. So if you're getting raisins in a supermarket, for instance, and you、yeah. need to choose the packet that's got the most in them, you could bring an elephant. And then you've got your money's worth, I right? Because they frequently put the, they frequently label on the packet how many raisins are in the bag. Not exactly. Well, they put the weight. They put the weight on. They don't say this <laughs> contains four thousand raisins. <laughs> four 
<laughs> I'm not having a good day with your amounts today. Andy. I buy in bulk, all right? That must be how many are in a big packet of raisins. I just, I just buy those little sun-made boxes the yeah. size of oh, a finger. You can't fit more than 30 raisins in there. Imagine that you've got 10 raisins in your hand. That's a nice handful slash mouthful. Right. You're 4,000. It's 400 handfuls of raisins <laughs> oh, in each dear. box. Look, I took a, it took a lot of work smuggling these into the country. I determined to sell them down. I knew you were walking funny. Um, just on testing elephants, uh-huh. so there was another uh, test of elephant smell by the University of KwaZulu-Natal, and they did something really cool. They built an elephant-sized lab mouse maze. So cool. you know the stereotype of scientists putting mice in a maze? Mm. It's almost always just a Y-shaped maze. So they put the mice in at the tail of the Y, as it were, and they'd see which of the two branches it goes into, and they built an elephant-sized one of that. And they put a bucket of food they liked at one branch of the Y, and they put a bucket of food they didn't like at the other branch of the Y, and they could identify it. They knew instantly which yeah. branch to go for. for just through food. smell. Oh. Just through smell, again, yeah. yeah. Amazing. So do they, so have, cool. they have the best smell of any mammal that we yeah. know of? They I reckon. do, don't they? That's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. They've got the highest number of olfactory receptors, definitely, haven't they? And the... I feel like other animals can claim it in a different sense. But yeah, their ability to distinguish between amounts seems Mm. to be unique. And it's so sensitive that, for instance, there was another experiment where they show that they can distinguish between different people. So in Kenya, there are different tribes and some of them kill elephants and some of them don't. So the Maasai kill elephants as a ritual thing, whereas the Kamba people don't. And if you hold up a Maasai tribes person's clothes, then the elephant freaks out and starts bashing its trunk that at the is ground. amazing, isn't it? That's yeah. absolutely incredible. <laughs> yeah. But they can do it by sight, which you've just described, and also by smell. Yes, they, mm. they can do it by sight and smell, yeah. So they identify the colour of the clothes, but also... Also, if they're blinded in the face, yeah. they can still smell it. Blindfolded, in the nose. we should say, blindfolded in the face. Blindfolded, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, either of those works. Yeah. <laughs> well, it just sounds a lot more cruel than my being, experiment, having the right to blind a hundred elephants. <laughs> uh, you're not going to get approval. Isn't it great to know that it does have the best sense of smell, given how big its nose is? Like, you just you would hope that that big nose had some sort of yeah. great advantage, yeah, yeah. and it does. Well, do you know one other thing they can smell? TNT. And they're very good at it. And in fact, in one sense, at least, they're better than dogs at it. Mm-hmm. What's that uh, sense? Uh, it's sense of smell. <laughs> um, I think it's the sort of the, the proportion they can identify it or I, the sensitivity score. They score 99.7% and dogs get about 94%. So there was an article all about this saying, so does this mean that elephants should take over TNT sniffing dogs duties? No, absolutely not. Their sheer size and weight makes them completely unsuited to being infield TNT detectors. <laughs> Which I think is fair at airports. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't you'd have to go past the sniffer elephants. Well, <laughs> they're not sniffing for TNT in airports. Yeah. This is in the minefields of Angola, isn't it? It's not yeah, like they're expecting is. people to smuggle huge suitcases what? of TNT oh, into, well, okay. into security. Oh, well. Um, another amazing thing is that so they're incredibly. Elephants are incredibly smart and they've only really started properly experimenting on their intelligence over the last 20 years or so. But we used to think they were idiots because, for instance, there was this experiment where scientists dangled really, really nice smelling fruit and food and stuff at various heights that were too difficult for them to reach. And they left sticks all over the floor yeah. and, the, and thinking the elephants will pick up the stick, hopefully, and then they'll prod the fruit. Like, like a piñata. Like a piñata, exactly. And they didn't. So scientists thought, well, they can't be that smart. They can't figure it out. They should have hung an actual donkey because that's what I'm, an elephant really they wouldn't use one of the basic rubbish piñatas would they they you'd hollow out an actual donkey and yeah. put sweets you would <laughs> you'd I, don't know if, I don't know if they have piñatas in their culture though <laughs> 
elephants. Also, you've been to some traumatic children's parties <laughs> if they've hollowed out a donkey. <laughs> That's tough to get through. You need a really big stick for a long time. <laughs> Mine and James's parties, I'm blinding elephants in one corner. James is scooping the in and out of a donkey in the other. <laughs> um, anyway, the point was that they weren't being stupid not being able to get it with a stick. They'd pick up the sticks and then they wouldn't prod at the fruit because people didn't understand the elephant's sense of smell is so good. So as soon as they pick up a stick, they can't smell anymore because they've <gasps> wrapped their trunk around it and so they couldn't smell where the fruit was oh. and the scientists because we're so human we just think oh you just see oh the fruit because we assume yeah. that sight is the most important thing but for them they had to smell where it so was so it's like putting a clothes peg on your nose but they wrapped their nose around the stick exactly yeah yeah so, exactly I read a thing wow. saying it's basically like having a nose on the palm of your hand every time you touch something you're smelling it much more than you are touching it. Butterflies can smell through their feet, can't they? Mm. They have olfactory stuff on their feet. So imagine if you had feet like a butterfly and hands like a... (laughs) This is the worst Muhammad (laughs) Ali ever said. I found, just on the subject of amazing senses of smell, there is a woman who can smell Parkinson's disease. Oh, this is really weird. So there are people with incredible sense of smell, the super smellers, they get called. And this lady was a retired nurse called Joy Milne. And obviously she'd worked with a lot of patients with Parkinson's. And she'd been to a talk about it by a doctor. And at the end of it, there was an any questions uh, call. And she put up a hand and said, why aren't you doing something about the fact that people with Parkinson's smell? And they didn't really, they thought, oh, that's a slightly weird question to ask. Um, and she, and eventually they worked out that she meant, no, I literally can smell it. And they tested it on her, and you can she can tell before physical symptoms appear. So yeah, that's incredible. They presented her with a load of T-shirts that had been worn either by patients with Parkinson's or people who did not have Parkinson's, and she got them all right apart from one false positive where she flagged someone up as having Parkinson's who didn't. Uh, and then later on, that person got in touch to say, oh, by the way, I've just been diagnosed with Parkinson's. Wow. So she had identified it before. Yeah. <laughs> so anyone knew. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. We need to move on in a sec. Uh, one more thing about elephant smell. Mm-hmm. Um, they smell each other's urine and get a lot of information about the pack, uh, about the herd from that. And if you, if they're walking in a line, let's say, yep. doing a conga or whatever, yeah. and then the one at the front smell some urine from the one at the back because some scientists have taken it and then run to the front of the queue and then put some urine there they get really confused because they know whose urine is whose and if it's at a place where they're not expecting it they get really confused and looking around and they can't work out what's going on wow let's say you came into the bathroom next mm-hmm. week when I'm on holiday in Japan and you smell the urine and you went bloody hell that's James's urine I thought he was in Japan <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like that cool and remembering, because that's the other thing. Uh, the two things we assume that elephants are good at, smelling through the trunks and remembering, because in the Jungle Book they say an elephant never forgets. Mm. Yeah. And they don't. So they remember all the smells of urine, of all the different mates they have. And also there's this amazing moment in 1999 at an elephant sanctuary <laughs> where there was this elephant called Jenny. Yeah, they're still going on about this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's this Asian elephant called Jenny and she was suddenly introduced to a new elephant into the sanctuary Mm. and they had this amazing reaction to each other they got really freaked out and agitated and then ran up to each other and it seemed like this uh, um, exhibition of euphoria for both the elephants and the carer of Jenny was like what on earth is going on this is so weird so she looked back into their history and for a few months 23 years earlier they'd worked in the circus together (laughs) (laughs) 
Just remembered each other. 23 years yeah. ago. That's incredible. We're like, Jenny, it's you. I don't remember anyone I worked with 23 years ago. <laughs> you look at us blankly every morning. <laughs> I was nearly in a conga the other day. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. It was at a wedding. It was a very long conga and everyone was going pie in the conga and they kept saying, hey, join the conga. And I kept saying, oh, I'm going to join on the end. Um, <laughs> I got about five people say, hey, get in here. Made room for me. I said, no, I'm, I'll just join on the end. Did you join on the I end? I tricked them all. No. Okay. Well done. We no one's going to know, are they? No one knows. Yeah. No one looks behind them in the conga. Exactly. Yeah. But I had, I'd already urinated at the very end of their route, <laughs> so I was there to freak them out. Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Chazinski. My fact this week is that Thomas Jefferson cut his Bible to pieces and glued it back together in the order he thought it should be written. And <laughs> Wow. Yeah, great. He had a better idea for the Bible. It was in the wrong order. And he was right, really. So this was the New Testament specifically. And he was a Christian, obviously Jefferson, and he had a Bible. And he wanted to put it all kind of in chronological order. So he got oh. all the Gospels. He ripped them apart. He actually had six different volumes. So he could do lots mm. of experimenting. And he had a Greek one, a Latin one, English and French ones. Um, and he cut up all the Gospels page by page, rearranged all the pages in chronological order. So, you know, if John said Jesus had a sandwich when he was 17, yeah. then Matthew said, and then he went on a slide when he was 20, yeah. he'd sort of put the Matthew after the John bit. Yeah. Even though in the actual Bible, Matthew would come before the John. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good Very idea. Cool. Yeah, Because Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they're all telling the same story. They're telling Same-y. the same story, different bits of it. Um, is there any good bits that he left out Do we know? He, I actually can't, don't know what the examples are that he left out, but I know he left out some of the dodgier miracles. So he was a bit sceptical that some of okay. the stuff might not have happened. Cool. The miracle of the sandwich and the slide. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It was tuna at the top and then it was BLT at the bottom. Wow. <laughs> he a step down, I would say. And he glued it back together and he liked it so much, his new upgraded version, that he glued all the pages together and he sent them to be bound properly and in fact I believe it still exists somewhere in America I think it's, it's at the, the Smithsonian Com- is it the Smithsonian yeah, of course it is they've got a lot of Jefferson stuff they've got his bible so you can visit it I'm not sure you can flick through it but I, I believe you can see it um, you definitely won't be able to flick through it yeah but it's, it's very unusual but it might be uh, if, if there's six volumes it might be open at yeah. certain pages um, his desk that he wrote the Declaration of Independence on they have that and a polygraph which I've always thought to be a lie detector but it's yeah, it I, would, I would have thought that too. Well, it is, right? Okay. So, But originally what it was, was a way of whenever he wrote letters, because he wrote thousands and thousands of letters, uh, and he always wanted a copy of each letter, because if they made it into the papers, he could uh, show the original. So it was a machine that was designed that would have a double pencil with a double ink well, and, yeah. Yeah, and it would mimic his writing. So he Brilliant. wrote two letters at a time, but the same letter. Yeah. Amazing. And makes actually more sense, because polygraph, it means lots of writing. So it's actually yeah. a better term for that machine. Yeah. Um, his Bible, he didn't mean it to be published because it was just a private sort of passion project of his. And he showed it to a few friends. But then after he died, it became very popular and lots of copies were made of it. It was printed and it was called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. That was his title That was for his it. name. Wasn't it? Yeah, he retitled it as well. He, the Bible wasn't good enough. Yeah. <laughs> he was a kind of a Jesus fan as opposed to a religion fan in some ways. And then 9,000 copies were printed. And until the 1950s, when they ran out, each newly elected senator got a version of it when they were elected. Mm. Like, Did they? The of office. Yeah. Do you know how it ends, the book? 
Uh, Spoiler alert. His book, I don't know, I don't. It ends, I believe, Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulchre, wherein was never man yet laid. There they laid Jesus, and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulchre, and departed. That's That's it. it. No resurrection. No resurrection. Oh. (laughs) He just dies. Poor Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That's like the main bit. That's what I was told at school. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the main bit. Yeah. That's like the somber art house reinterpretation. (laughs) Realism bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. He was an amazing guy, though, Jefferson. He's quite a confusing person, isn't he? Because he has this bizarre legacy where Mm. he came up with the idea that all man is created equal. And then he had 600 slaves and everything. And actually, even the Monticello, which is the place that he built his home, very famous home, even the Monticello website now acknowledges that Sally Hawkins mothered about six of his children, at least. Who was? Who was an enslaved person. Wow. Yeah who bizarrely was the daughter of a woman who mothered children of his father-in-law. So they kept it in the family. So his wife's Mm. dad uh, had lots of affairs with Sally Hawkins' mum. Wow. Sorry, it's not Sally Hawkins. That's a famous actress. Uh, Sally something. Sally Hemmings. Sally Hawkins is, of course, in Paddington, (laughs) The Shape of Water. She's great. She was also the mother of a lot of Jefferson's children. God, she's versatile. I know. (laughs) So... He so he was third president right after mm-hmm. Washington and then who was it John Adams yep yeah. and he you know he did a lot of he had a lot of remarkable achievements in office um, as we said drafted the Declaration of Independence he's also responsible for a phrase that was a massive hit in the 19th century in America oh, can't wait to hear this yeah so he bumped into a man near his home this is the story and you know no one knows if it's true or not but this guy started complaining they were riding their horses next to each other some neighbour of his and the guy was complaining about everything in Washington and all these idiots they had running things. And they, so he talked for a couple of hours, talked Jefferson's ear off about all this. And then eventually they got to Jefferson's house and Jefferson said, well, this is me. And, um, is that the phrase? No, oh. <laughs> that would have been a great <laughs> phrase to come up with. <laughs> this is me. This is me. And Jefferson, so the guy eventually asked pretty much the first question he'd asked this whole time. And he said, what's your name, by the way? And the guy's, and he said, well, my name is Thomas Jefferson. So, uh-oh, massive social clangor this guy's made. He was deeply embarrassed. And so he couldn't think of anything to say. And he just said, my name is Haynes. And then he galloped away on his horse. So this became a phrase, my name is Haynes, which is whenever you had to leave suddenly or whenever you were massively embarrassed about something. <laughs> or you, it was basically the 19th century, boy, was my face red. That's or great. is it like, I'll get my coat kind of thing? Yes, it is like that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. What was it? My name is my Haynes. My name is Haynes. My name is Haynes. Name is Start yeah. doing it. Um, just very quickly on typos in the Bible. Oh, yeah. There are some absolute doozies. So there's one in the 1682. There's a 1682 edition which gets called the Cannibal's Bible Mm. because there's a typo. It should be if the latter husband hate her and they mistyped it. (laughs) So it's if the latter husband ate her. I'm talking about his wife. And there's a great one, the 1944 King James, which has a line which should be, submit yourselves to your own husbands. It's advice for wives, basically. But it accidentally reads, submit yourselves to your owl husbands. It's <laughs> 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 good advice. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that in 19th century America, caviar was a free bar snack. Mm. Yeah. Actually, I hate caviar. Do you? Yeah. Oh, well. I don't like things that are savory that have um, the kind of texture that I think sweet things should have. That's understandable. Well, I know where and when you should not go on holiday in 19th century America because you couldn't move for it. 
Um, it was so readily available because mm. there was huge sturgeon fish. That's the where the fish that caviar comes from. Yeah. Or classic caviar anyway. And they were just so thick in the rivers that uh, people put it in bars to, basically like peanuts to make people thirsty. Oh, yeah. So it was a way of getting people because it's very oh, salty okay. stuff. So that was a way of getting people thirsty. Oh, yeah, because nice. it used to be used like salt as well, didn't it? You'd sprinkle it on a meal just to add a little bit of salty flavour. Yeah. Like How that. did they used to eat it? Because from what I've read, the best place and the sort of most um, encouraged place to eat it from is the little bit of skin between your index finger and your thumb so you place it on oh. there oh that's the um what's that called the snuff box. snuff box yeah it's called the natural snuff box or something oh, okay they say it's because it, you don't taint the taste by doing that so if you use a metal spoon for right. example yeah. that that has a metally taste that can oh, affect yeah. the caviar is that that sounds just like the kind of thing that high society makes up the weird <laughs> ways to eat the high society food True. isn't it but i think if it's a bar snack it surely should be on a cocktail stick and you could get one little egg. <laughs> I would think it would just be in a bowl like peanuts with like 12 I, different types of urine. I, I think it's like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> People don't wash their hands coming back from the toilet. It's oh, very squidgy to get on your fingers. Though. Yeah. You think you just do it straight with the fingers? Yeah, probably not. I you mean, need to have a finger bowl next to it. Yes. Let's say in Russia you have it on blini. Mm-hmm. So yeah. maybe they had little bits of bread. That's perfect. That's like a little micro plate for each bit of caviar. That's a very nice way of eating, I think. Yes. But this is the thing. So US caviar was so common, but Russian caviar was thought to be a lot better. So quite often, US caviar was exported to Europe, and then it was repackaged and relabeled as Russian caviar. <gasps> then it was exported back to the States and sold as Russian caviar as better stuff, even though wow. it's exactly the same. Amazing. Yeah. And, that, and basically what happened was the caviar in America was extremely numerous, like you say, because the sturgeon were numerous. Mm. But then they overfished them. And then that meant mm. there was no caviar left in America anymore, which meant you had to get it from Russia, which made it much more expensive. Is exactly. that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah. Because um, in Russia before then, before the Western demand increased, in Russia it was sort of peasant food as well, wasn't mm, it? It was yeah. considered much more peasant foody than sauerkraut, for instance, which is more of a delicacy. And they use it just as a flavouring. And it was only when there was apparently a Greek guy called Ioannis Varvakis who discovered Russian caviar on his travels. So this is delicious. I'm going to introduce it to high society in Europe. And then that was what shot its prices up. He made it fashionable. Kind of just shows that food, how much you value it, is just about how fashionable someone yeah. says it is. Hmm. Apparently, if you were to take, let's say, a 45 kilogram barrel of caviar... Andy. I'm not putting us up my Boston James. <laughs> no, not after last time. <laughs> but if you would take this massive barrel of caviar, which yeah. is kind of how they transport it, it would take a farm labourer two weeks to earn it back in the olden days in Russia. And now it would take a decade for them Whoa. to earn it. Wow. That's amazing. Big difference. Mm. I guess so much of it is because it's sturgeon. I mean, you get salmon caviar and you get lumpfish caviar and yeah. there are all sorts of other much, much cheaper meals which are just fish eggs basically of different yeah. kinds but sturgeon has this kind of you know supposed hallmark of quality about it you yeah. know it's pretty similar so okay here's a question is caviar vegetarian because it is eggs not vegan for sure it's not vegan i'd say no because you have to um you have to kill the sturgeon in order to get it fair play however there is some i think vegetarian caviar out there uh-huh. where they don't kill the sturgeon oh yeah they make a tiny incision and then they massage the sturgeon to get it out of them. Oh, and it's, that's nice. Well, it's quite a rough massage. It's oh. like, I'm really sure you feel that. This is a company in Leeds. And then you just squeeze the sturgeon like a toothpaste tube, basically, and all the caveat comes out of it. But And then you put it back in the water? 
Yeah, it survives. You keep them. Yeah, I was reading about this actually. Yeah, they yeah. they um, you can repeat the process every fifteen months. Yeah, um, yeah. This was I, I read that there was a scientist called Angela Collar. Um, she spent nine years trying to work out how you didn't you wouldn't have to kill the sturgeon in order to extract the eggs, and it, I believe it was her who pioneered it. Could be wrong. Maybe multiple people around the world had the same idea. But the process isn't just doing what you said with the incision. Mm. They give the sturgeons an ultrasound um, <laughs> to see if they're ready, and then they have a protein. <laughs> which you're talking about which releases the eggs and wow. then they massage them out like a toothpaste tube yeah, yeah it's that's extraordinary. really funny wow. an ultrasound for a fish yeah you're gonna have a hundred thousand babies congratulations <laughs> <laughs> i think they have to give them ultrasounds anyway because there's no way of telling if they're male or female so you oh, need to make sure that you've sturgeon. got a female fish i think so from the oh. outside so you have to check their innards anyway so you wow. got the right gonads. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> One way that you might get some eggs without killing the um, sturgeon is sometimes producers will take some of the eggs out to check if they're ready or not because you don't want to kill your sturgeon, get all the eggs out, and it's not at the right stage. And so some fisheries will take a female sturgeon, put a st- incision in her, put a straw in her, and then suck out some of the eggs to taste them to see if they taste right. And then if they're right, then they'll kill the sturgeon and get the eggs. And if they're wrong, then they'll just let her go for a while. That must be something someone's doing in a posh Russian restaurant. It's just serving up live sturgeon, jamming a straw straw. into it. (laughs) Uh, Yes, but we only have paper straws in our restaurant, so it's good for the environment. (laughs) And then do you, what, if it's not ready yet, do you just Just sew it back up? Yeah, yeah. And then... That is insane, isn't it? Just- they have a bit of a rough old ride surgeon because mm. it's not just caviar. We also use them for beer, don't we? Traditionally, mm. they were the original isinglass providers. So mm. that's the um, swim bladder. And that's what they used to kind of purify beer. It was used in things like Guinness until a couple of years ago. I think they got rid of it. It's to clarify alcoholic what? drinks. Sorry, I don't fully understand it. So you get the swim bladder and it's just it's used in the wine making or the beer making process to get rid of a lot of the sediment. I right. think it's kind of used like a sieve. Yeah. And so that's why a lot of beers aren't vegetarian yeah. or a lot of vegetarians. A lot of vegans, vegans can't have beer. wine, can't they? Yeah. Because of that reason. Yeah. Um, sturgeon are amazing. Amazing, amazing fish. They can weigh up to 1500 kilos okay like that's a lot it's a I, work, lot. I only yeah. work in stone uh that's a lot of stone it is yeah no they are massive, massive. and they grow up to 28 feet long I which know. i find i mean Sorry? that's yeah 28 <laughs> feet long right what? sturgeon thank you that's Those are the, weird, i mean the it? very very biggest ever found would yeah. have been 20 about around there okay that's i mean beluga that's... sturgeon so it's um a I think beluga sturgeon is the second biggest kind of bony fish. And yeah, it's the length of four men. That is extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> I see. And they, they take a long time to... This One of the reasons why caviar is so valuable is that they take so long to reach maturity, right? So the biggest ones, sometimes it's not until about 20 that they're producing enough caviar. Wow. You have to wait forever. So as well as eating fish eggs, you can eat fish sperm. There's something called shirako. Um, that's probably not how you pronounce it in Japan. It translates as white children, and it's the raw, it's the raw or cooked sperm of the codfish. Mm. And in Russia, they eat the sperm of herrings because they like herrings in Russia. And they not on, they preserve it, but not only do they eat it on their own, sometimes they will eat it with the roe of herrings as well so they eat the eggs of the herring and the sperm of the herring in the same meal in the same meal yeah I think that's a little unkind isn't it 
Why? To whom? To the sperm and the eggs, because they should they belong together. They should be. Well, you're marrying them. You then you eat one of each, and then a herring grows in your stomach. <laughs> <laughs> it's like if you eat an apple seed, then an apple tree will grow out of your mouth. Oh man, we've got a lot of stuff to fill you with. <laughs> I do feel like if I ate the sperm and the eggs of a herring, I would genuinely worry about that. Right? right? Yeah. Yeah. You, you yeah. would worry a little bit. The sperm is called um, malaka, which I thought was Russian for milk. Oh man, but your Russian lessons are not going well. <laughs> God, and you came back with a pint the other day, didn't you? <laughs> Hope you enjoyed your tea. <laughs> um, you get ant caviar too. That's the oh, yeah. thing. What's that? It is ant pupae and larvae. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's okay. not eggs really, but it's from a particular Mexican ant, which is known locally as la hormiga pedora. <laughs> you say that as if there's only one ant. <laughs> It's incredibly, it's incredibly expensive stuff. This guy can't shop. He cooks it as well as producing it, so it's a real treat if you're in town. Um, no, La Homiga Pedora is, no, is the farty ant because their nests smell like farts. Ah. But the eggs are a delicacy, or the, the larvae, you know. You do get snail caviar, don't mm. you? Which is quite like fish caviar, apart from it tastes a bit more like snails. Than I've fish. never. I've, have you tried it? Yeah. Well, how? Mm. You get cowboy caviar. <laughs> Is that made of the eggs of cowboys? <laughs> no, it's slang. It's um, it's bull's testicles that are fried. Um, so they're also oh, known as Rocky yeah. Mountain oysters. Yeah, I've had those. Mm. Have you? But they also um, they would have those as bar snacks, wouldn't they? In the olden days, yeah, you would have yeah. testicles as bar snacks. What? They, they eat them a lot somewhere. I think it might be in Mexico. It's still a, a common eating. Yeah, South of America. Somewhere South America. Yeah. It was the Montana Testicle Festival that I read about them in. Mm. Um, so maybe Montana as it well. It makes sense. Yeah. If you're gonna eat them anywhere. It's going to be there. Yeah. <laughs> Confusingly, it's also, from what I can tell online, cowboy caviar is a salad which is just a lot of salad bits thrown together. So okay. there's no sense oh, to it. Wow. It's just, a, yeah. So be if careful you, when ordering. If you're a vegetarian in Montana. Yeah. <laughs> what else happens at a testicle festival? You, I think it's a lot of eating of testicles um, yeah. com- competitively. Testicle festival is a very nice phrase to say. It is. It's very nice. Yeah. Shave of waxing of testicles, probably. Yeah. I'd have there, like waxing competitions. There's the big bull contest that I've got here, which is uh, men in wet underwear. So I guess no. That's what it says here. <laughs> I wonder if you, you could call it the festival. Yes, festival. you could. Yeah. Or the yeah. testival. No, neither is as good is as, good as testicle festival. No. Anyway, um, they branded it right. <laughs> they branded it right. Well done, guys. There's there's another caviar. There's a caviar sort of uh, replacement you can have, which is very much like the real Russian thing. And this is a replacement for Russian sevruga caviar. And this is a kind of caviar that you can get from paddlefish. And basically, where most paddlefish are is a place called Warsaw in Missouri. And so apparently it's so, it's so good, this stuff. And all the Russians in Missouri think that this is just like their Sabrugo caviar back home. And so there's, there's this huge black market caviar fishing problem there. And there was a really good, it was this was on longread.com, I think, a really good long read about it. And it was about police descending on this place. And its population doubles in the paddlefish fishing season, which is just a couple of weeks long, because people flock there to try and get these fish and get the caviar out of it. And they thought, we know there are all these Russian people who are coming and they're illegally poaching these fish. And then they're going, they're obviously selling them, they're getting so many. And gradually, as you're reading this article, you realise the police have this massive problem. Because 
even though they know these fish are disappearing, they know they're illegally taking them, they can't track down any kind of black market. They can't trace any money. And it turns mm. out when actually they start arresting people and when they go undercover, then no one's selling it at all. It's just all these Russians are picking it. it. They're just eating it. No. They've just got these big Russian families. Oh. So they'll get like tens of thousands of pounds worth of caviar or um, some of them will have, you know, about 1,000 pounds worth of just the fish themselves. Mm. And they're like, no, we're not going to. Why would I sell this? I'm not going to oh. sell this. They just wow. take it back to their big families. And they eat it all. And so there's nothing really that they can do. And they just get taken to the police station and told, please don't take that fish again. And then (laughs) sent home. Yeah. They just like it. They like it in Russia. I can say that much. I think it's delicious. I was reading about a sniffer cat called Russick. Sniffer cat. Sniffer cat. Anna just praises this entire long read. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing industry in America. Fucking sniffer cat, which looks like a bit of research left over from your elephant research from an hour ago. This is in Russia. This is uh, there was uh, there was a lot. There's a lot of smuggling, or was a lot of smuggling uh, in the Caspian Sea. So they would come to a checkpoint, and people would try and get it through on their cars. And um, they found that that was a big problem. But they had this cat that they had adopted that was, I believe, a stray who loved eating um, chunks of sturgeon Mm -hmm. and caviar and so on that was being confiscated from the criminals. As a result, developed a really strong nose for sniffing out whenever there was sturgeon in the area. So what they they started doing was every time a car came up, uh, the cat would be sent to go and, you know, maybe they walked it on a leash. I didn't actually get that detail. And (laughs) Russick would have a smell and smell out all of these... Um, bits of sturgeon and caviar and uh, so good was he at doing it that they actually retired the sniffer dog that they had oh, that has got to hurt yeah. if you're a yeah. sniffer dog and you lose your job to a cat yeah oh first first I lost my job to the elephant in that airport and now this <laughs> but yeah so unfortunately he died in 2013 when a vehicle that he was searching suddenly uh, jerked forward oh how yeah. convenient yeah, it was a hit job I can't believe they didn't do that sooner. I can't believe no smuggler thought of doing that straight away. (laughs) Also, can I... So, they've got the cat smelling the cars. Are they stationing it on the pavement and cars whiz past and the cat's then like... <laughs> and then you know to stop it's not, that a, it's not like a speed gun. This yeah. is surely at a it's checkpoint. A, it's a checkpoint. You have so, to stop at checkpoints. So imagine <laughs> holding on to the cat and pointing at cars as they go past. You pull its tail when you want it to sniff something. <laughs> but surely once you stop a car and you've opened the doors, isn't yeah. it as easy for you? We've just covered our big sturgeon are. I would say I could find sturgeon as easily and quickly as a cat. <laughs> You're right, they're massive. Oh, wow. they were, they're really do you think big. they were sat in the, the sort of passenger seat yeah. with a hat and a fake mustache? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is my friend Bob. <laughs> what do you say, Kitty? That's a sturgeon? <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for Russet or whatever he's called. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have believed in Bob. And it stinks. I mean, if there's a car full of fish, I'm going to smell it. I don't need a magic cat. <laughs> But maybe his gift was in telling people about it. Oh, yeah. Like most cats, if they smell, they're not going to tell you. They're not going to grasp someone up. I've not written down the most interesting bit of the story. It was a talking cat. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Missed out the best detail. <laughs> Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that wrestling star Andre the Giant was so massive that once when he drunkenly passed out in a hotel lobby, staff couldn't move him and had to corner him off with velvet ropes until he woke up. 
So Amazing. this is yeah, this is from a um, this is an anecdote that comes from a book called As You Wish: Inconceivable Tales from the Making of the Princess Bride by Carrie Elwes, who was the lead actor in it. He was also in Robin Hood, Men in Tights, um, and the whole book is just anecdotes about the time that they were making the movie, and that's what came out: uh, the fact that he just used to have all these drunken ex- escapades, wow. one of which meant he yeah passed out. And Andre the Giant was in that movie as well, right? He played Fezzik the Giant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, really typecast, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> I wasn't going to play Pesek the Dwarf, was he? <laughs> yeah. um, and he was a wrestler, Andre the Giant. He yeah. was a wrestler before he was a, a film star. Absolutely, really, I mean that's yeah. that's his big career thing, really. Well, before a... that, he was a rugby player, and before that, he was in a furniture removal business. And before that, he was a child. <laughs> before that, he was a tiny egg. A professional egg. <laughs> but he's uh, to the WWF, now the WWE, he is one of the great wrestling stars of all time. He was in the period of Hulk Hogan and Macho Man and Ultimate yeah. Warrior, that sort of very classic era when they started. I just don't get wrestling. What? It doesn't make any sense to me we've covered it before on this podcast and i find it impossible to research because everything you read about it you're like is this real did this really happen Mm. the confusion of real sport and fake acting is bewildering like there's this fight between him and hulk hogan which was this really famous fight and um apparently it was super controversial it was in 1988 and there was there was a referee a famous referee called dave hebner who was refereed wrestling matches and he happened to have an identical twin oh yes who they tracked down for this match referee and yeah Yeah. the referee had an identical twin he didn't really i think no he did he did really i've seen the actual pictures either he did or there's some amazing photoshopping going on but he had this identical twin and so right Andre the Giant's agent got Dave who was supposed to referee the match locked him in a cupboard and then bribed Earl his identical twin to referee the game instead and he did and then he made Andre the Giant one and then Dave broke out of his closet and then him and his identical twin brother had a big fight afterwards in front of the crowd this is the weirdest conversation I I really want to hear Anna do the commentary of WWF I don't understand any of this is that real oh my god but there's storylines there's storylines you go to the theatre all the time are you standing up going what the fuck is going on here No, 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 because in the write-ups of the theatre, it doesn't say, and there was an incredibly controversial moment when Hamlet's mother remarried (laughs) Hamlet's uncle and the audience can... You're like, okay, this is a story. Whereas in the Wikipedia page, there's this... Was it controversial or was it all made up? all made up. Is it definitely... It's all made up. It's all made up. Then why is it controversial? It's controversial (laughs) in the world of wrestling. Which is a fake world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now you're getting it. <laughs> no, it is this it is, is weird amazing. how it's presented as true. You know, normally so in the plays there is a synopsis. Normally when you go out of the play, the thing doesn't keep happening out. Yes. No, but no, but <laughs> I just think it's amazing that we found the edge of Anna's comfort zone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I and never thought we'd get there. Who would know it was pro wrestling <laughs> is fake. <laughs> It just makes me have a panic attack when I read about it. But it's a drama like EastEnders. It's it goes on and yeah, on. Of course, the characters not... don't smash out into the news at ten, <laughs> yeah. and suddenly they're hey, brawling. And what about um, the guy from Hollyoaks was fighting the guy from Emmerdale last week? What I missed that. Yeah, one of them yeah. got fired in real life. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Although this is all making me wonder about everything. Wait, hang on. So there was a real life fight between a character- someone in. Someone oh. in Emmerdale and someone in um, Hollyoaks. Was it Hollyoaks? Yes, it was Hollyoaks. Yeah, yes. they got in a big fight. Wow. 
Physical fight. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you meant that someone from Hollyoaks turned up in Emmerdale, like a character <laughs> sort of made his way through the membrane and he ended up, because I definitely watched that as well. <laughs> like a weird p- portal opens between the worlds. It's like the Truman Show or something. Yeah. One of the pint glasses from the old Vic suddenly smashes through into Coronation Street. <laughs> Look, can we get back to Andre the Giant? Of course, Sorry, of course. Andre yeah. the Giant. Oh, so, was he a giant? So he, <laughs> it was actually three children in a massive overcoat. <laughs> <laughs> so when he was drinking, according to Carrie Elwes, when he was drinking in New York once, the NYPD um, had to send an undercover cop to follow him around the bars because if he got too drunk, there was once time where he fell over and crushed a human underneath <laughs> and they didn't want that to happen again. Oh, no. Um, no, yeah. not, to, not to death. No, no, just, no, yeah, no, no, but no, I think but he was stuck. You know, that's, injured, that's seven foot you? two of massive, wow. massive body on you. Mm. He got so tall. Because uh, he had acromegaly, you know, um, that was the cause of his giant size. Um, he that his parents did not recognise him, so he left home at fourteen. He came back at nineteen, and they said, "Who are you?" And they'd even seen him wrestling on TV without recognising who he was. But yeah, they didn't realise until quite late, right? So he wasn't sort of amazingly huge. He was normal until he was fifteen. Normal sized until he was fifteen. Yeah. And we keep saying he gets drunk, but to give him credit, I don't think he really did get drunk very often. No, that's he true. basically held his drink incredibly well and he drank extraordinary amounts. Like he'd drink a hundred over a hundred beers in a night and be fine. Or I think someone was once asked how much can he drink before he's drunk and someone said he starts uh, he starts to feel it after the first bottle of vodka or something. Mm. So well, he, he used to order a drink, which was a concoction that consisted of 40 ounces of just random liquids, which he called the American. <laughs> he just he just had it poured into a pitcher. And so would... glad he didn't have a cocktail bar, because that is the most disgusting sounding drink. <laughs> <laughs> he to like random a... liquids on a menu. Well, that's Carrie Elwes again. This is from him, and he says, it, I've never tasted airplane fuel, but I imagine it's very close. It's like a that. top shelf you would have. Like, let's say it was your 21st birthday and your friends wanted you to get drunk, they'd buy you a top shelf, which is basically one of every shot in a glass. Oh. Your friends would have done the same thing, I'm sure. <laughs> well, yeah, we would have done, but we didn't finish our croquet in time, so we all had to go home. <laughs> um, when Andre the Giant was in Paris one day, he realised that the cars there were quite small and he could just move them around if he wanted to because he was so strong. <laughs> and so he would get his friends, because in America they're much bigger, right? Yeah. So he would get his friends' cars and then move them into tiny little spaces where they couldn't get <laughs> <laughs> God, it would make parking easier if you could just get out of the car and lift it into the space. (laughs) That's such a good idea. He could hardly get into cars. He was Mm. so huge. This is amazing. There's photos of him getting in and out of a car and he basically went had to go in on all fours and be the entire back seat was him mm. yeah. you know yeah he once got into a taxi and they couldn't close the door wow what, who was it that I think we've done it on the podcast before but when he was a kid because he couldn't get the bus the normal bus he used to be driven oh, to school Samuel, by Samuel Beckett, Samuel Beckett. Beckett. Yeah. but that's not true is that, that not true that was actually another thing that Elwes claimed um, mm. but wasn't quite true so he grew up in the same French town weirdly as Samuel Beckett moved to in Molière and apparently Beckett was kind of a friendly guy and used to drive the kids to school okay. and in a way that was okay back then and he sometimes he would hit to ride with him but he could fit on the bus because how small would a bus have to be uh, if you know well, no, he, he had a pickup truck and the kids would sit on the back of the truck so, so it is yeah. true that he used yeah. to get a lift right? yes he yeah, did it, it just wasn't because he couldn't fit on the bus right, right. okay yeah. Yeah, yeah, got it yeah. wow. he was a really nice guy though wasn't yeah. he everyone said he, he was very much a gentle giant everyone called him and didn't someone said he didn't like hurting people 
which now I understand that wrestling isn't really about really hurting people does make sense. But he was friends with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Arnold Schwarzenegger in this PBS documentary that you should watch if you're really interested in Andre the Giant. But Arnold Schwarzenegger said that he was at a restaurant with him once and Andre used to always insist on paying for anyone's dinner or anyone's drinks when he went out with them. And so Arnold knew this and he tried to sort of sneakily pay and Andre lifted him up <laughs> off his chair and put him on top of a cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, bizarrely, uh. and it's weird seeing Arnold Schwarzenegger say this word, it's an armoire. So he says, and Andre just lifted me up and he put me onto the armoire. <laughs> Wow. wow! I never thought I'd see Arnold Schwarzenegger use the word Arnold. Yeah. He that was meant to play Fezzik. He was meant to play the role in Princess Bride. Yeah, Arnie. yeah. he was the original casting wow, choice. That would have been such it. a different film. Yeah, yeah. And he didn't because it took so long to make, didn't it? It took about a decade to make, and by then yeah. Arnie was too famous. Really? It took a decade to get into production, yeah, yeah, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And by then Arnold Schwarzenegger had a real career. Gosh, well. I've got some facts about alcohol tolerance, but I don't know if you've got more on Andre the Giant. Oh, it's just that he kept a small farm and he would walk around and play with the animals because they didn't stare at him for his size. I think that's bullshit as well, but worth saying. No, I think he he definitely likes not being stared at. Mm. He's It's kind of a tragic life he had because he was obviously lovely and knew that his career depended on being huge but at the same time he said the princess bride was the happiest he'd ever been filming that because for the first time ever people didn't stare at him because i guess he was just an actor on set and they knew what to expect Mm. he loved it and in fact he there's a really nice interview with one of his friends called lanny who said that after he'd filmed the princess bride um andre invited him around to his house and gave him a bunch of alcohol and said hey do you want to come into my drawing room i'll show you something and made him watch the film and then he kept inviting him around and kept making him watch it and he did it with all his friends because he loved he was so proud of it and he said you know did you think i was good in it do you think i was all right in the princess bride and they'd all be like yeah you were really great in that don't worry have you guys all seen this movie because yeah i I actually don't even know what it's about so like is it a is it a fairy it's a tale fantasy, thing? yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. but a very funny one. Oh, yeah, cool. it is an amazing film. If anyone yeah. listening hasn't seen it, yeah, it's, it's a classic, really isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's very yeah. good. Um, I also did a bit of uh, reading about just other people who drank a lot. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Oliver Reed, oh, one yeah. of the great hellraisers of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I didn't know this. He would frequently expose his penis when drunk. Standard practice, I guess. But he got a tattoo of an eagle's claw on his penis. Oh. I know. Painful. Well, it was just a tattoo of one. It wasn't an actual claw. Yeah, but do you it. think people got confused and thought an eagle had landed on his tongue? <laughs> <laughs> well, he then later got an eagle's head tattooed on his shoulder and he would show fellow drinkers his shoulder tattoo and then he'd say, would you like to see where it's perched? And then get his cock out. <laughs> wow. I know. That's quite a labour-intensive practical joke, isn't yeah, it? Really it really is. <laughs> So he died on the set of Gladiator. You know, they yeah. had to sort of reconstitute his role for the final film. But when he died, he'd had 12 double rums, lots of whiskey, and an arm wrestle. And then oh, which, which of those killed him? <laughs> uh, I think it was the previous 60-odd years that killed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Just another film giant mm. is Richard Keel, and he's the guy who played Jaws um, in... Oh. In Jaws. In Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> he was amazing. I really believe it. was actually it. a sturgeon. <laughs> <laughs> uh. 
So famous fish Richard Keel. No, he he played Jaws in the Bond films. But he had lots of jobs before he became an actor. So he was first of all he was a cemetery plot salesman. I just like the idea. So he was seven foot two, whatever, seven foot three. Imagine someone selling you a cemetery plot who's a giant. And then he was a door to door vacuum cleaner salesman. Whoa. You know how um, if you're if you bury someone, they're six feet under. Mm. He could stand at the bottom of that plot and still talk to you. <laughs> yeah. and you'd be able to see his face. <laughs> wow. And what um, else was he? A va- vacuum cleaner salesman. Vacuum cleaner salesman. Mm. And yeah. then he married a woman called Diane who was five foot one. And she did an interview and they said, he had also, also, sorry. He's got lovely knees. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, the opposite. They said, why did you marry him? And she said, we just see eye to eye on most things. Oh. <laughs> sweet. That's very sweet. Any more for any more? I'm no? done. I'm out. Um, I mean, I'll just tell you. Go on, tell us. Well, it's just another Hellraiser fact. It's not really relevant. But oh, yeah. uh, Peter O'Toole, yeah. Yeah. big old drinker. Um, when he was filming Lawrence of Arabia, he uh, found and bought a precious pair of Greek earrings, but he had to get them through customs, so he smuggled them through in his foreskin. <laughs> wow. No. I didn't yeah. expect that. <laughs> <laughs> I told you it wasn't relevant. <laughs> I going, Are you sure, Jumbo? Are you sure it's there? <laughs> we better get the cat as well. <laughs> a second opinion. <laughs> <laughs> She's an elephant, he's a cat. Together, they fight crime. <laughs> okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy at Andrew Hunter M, James at James Harkin, and Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account at No Such Thing, or you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. We have everything up there from upcoming tour dates to links to all of our previous episodes. We even have a behind the scenes documentary called Behind the Gills. Check that out as well. It's us on tour. It's really fun. Um, okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. We'll see you again next week. Goodbye. <laughs>